This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Remember when you were a kid in an awkward phase and people would say, you'll grow out of it? That's the title of comedian Jesse Klein's new book of essays. I really like the freedom of just starting with one topic, rambling along, maybe having a glass of wine as I'm writing, getting a little bit drunk another thought comes along. What's the new tell-all that's making Silicon Valley actually look up from its collective laptops? Antonio Garcia Martinez, a former finance guy turned startup chief, is here to talk about his book, Chaos Monkeys. Every plague that afflicts early stage startups we had, couldn't raise money, co-founder issues, we got sued by our previous employer, which is a massive crisis because we had no money. Plus literary news and the books we at The Book Review and other people are reading this week. The New York Times wants to hear your thoughts on podcasts, this one and any others you listen to. If you've got a few spare minutes, check out our survey online. Go to nytimes.com slash book review survey. And thank you. Jessie Klein joins us now. She has a long and very glamorous resume. She is the head writer and an executive producer of Comedy Central's series Inside Amy Schumer. She's also written for Transparent and for Saturday Night Live and has been a regular panelist on NPR Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And now she has written a book called You'll Grow Out of It. Jessie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you very much for having me. I'm still reeling from the description of my resume as glamorous. <laughs> you left out all of the extremely unglamorous parts of it, but that's fine. For book people, that's all very fancy and indeed glamorous. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Did you secretly always want to write a book? What, what's the book's origin story? I was unemployed. Um, the first season of Inside Amy Schumer uh, had just finished production, but we hadn't aired. And so we had no idea if we were going to be picked up again. And usually in TV, you're not because just the numbers play that way. And I had nothing to do. And my um, my manager told me I should meet with this book agent who he was friends with. And I sat down with a book agent whose name is David Kuhn. And he was really encouraging. He had read one or two essays that I had written over the years and was like, I think you have a book in you. And then long story already too long, he kind of gave me a process to to just start writing like one story a week that he said he, he promised he would read. Once we got on a roll, he was like, okay, so we're going to call this you're writing a book proposal and you'll just keep writing one story a week until I tell you when to stop. <laughs> I respond very well to structure. And that is basically how the book came to be. And are those stories actually still in it or did they morph and change? And, and Oh, now no, those, those are, are in the very much, very much stories that are all, I think, pretty much all in the book. So in terms of that process, I mean, you've written a lot before. You've obviously written um, essays for Esquire and Cosmopolitan, but most of your writing has been, I think, um, stand-up and TV. How different is the process of writing a book versus doing those other exciting things? For me, at least, um, I'm sure it's different for everyone. For me, the process of writing a book was actually closer to doing stand-up in a certain way, although I would say a certain kind of stand-up. There are nights where you can do stand-up, depending on where you're doing it, where you have a little more time, you're kind of figuring out, maybe you're working on your set, and you're kind of just riffing and, and letting your mind kind of go with the flow. 
and that was kind of what writing the book was like for me. It was it was most different from writing for TV, um, just because no matter what format of TV you're in, you you have a very strict clock that mm-hmm. you are on, a very strict page count, and you're really you're really trying to compress all of the time for the most part. And I found it really freeing um, and enjoyable to kind of let the book flow, kind of just like a a monologue, I guess. Um, which makes it sound like writing was way easier than it was. The word flow was definitely not always at work, um, but sometimes it was. So I, I really like the freedom of just starting with one topic, rambling along, maybe having a glass of wine as I'm writing, getting a little bit drunk, another thought comes along, and then, um, you know, it's not like it has to be made into 21 and a half minutes of TV. It can be as long as it is. Although I certainly wasn't trying to get into like goldfinch territory. Right. With stand-up, though, you have your editor, in a way, is the audience's laughter, right? And there's a yeah. response. So you like you, you, you go up there, you do your thing, and then you come back and you kind of rework it based on what you felt in the room. Exactly. That is the bitch of the writing <laughs> part. Yes, that is the piece that is missing. Um for sure. Uh, there are definitely moments, again, maybe a little buzzed. I'm a rosé drinker during the day. <laughs> I did write a lot of this book at a um, at a cafe near my old house um, called One Girl Cookie, where they, they're just lovely, and they serve both cake and wine. And um, I'd be lying if I said a lot of this wasn't written with cake and wine. I felt like I was entitled to have the cake and the wine as long as I kept writing. I would kind of be happily buzzing along with something that I thought felt pretty good and felt maybe like it was funny. And then I'd look it over the next day and be like, oh, <laughs> this could really just super suck. <laughs> I have no idea. It took a while for me to remember that there would be a public looking at this. I had to kind of put that that fact aside. Right, right. You, you can't worry about the pesky readers. So... This is a non-TV person question. When you hear, you know, that you're the head writer of Amy Schumer's uh, TV show, you think, okay, so there's the head writer, there's Amy, there's presumably other writers who are not head writers, and you're all kind of in a room together writing this thing collectively compared with sort of sitting alone in the cafe eating cake and drinking wine and writing the book. All of your presumptions about how it works are correct. Amy is there. I am there. There are other writers there's another um, another person named Dan Powell, who's another executive producer on the show. There's a, there's a large amount of collective work that happens, and occasionally we retreat to our respective homes and write a sketch, you know, a first draft of a sketch up, but that doesn't really take too long. And then we all kind of come back together and work on it as a group. Um, so yeah, writing the book is much lonelier. Um, writing in TV, one of the most fun things about writing in TV is that you don't really get that lonely. Did you think of this book as a memoir when you were working on it or as like, oh, it's those 24 stories or essays that your you mentioned your agent sort of got you started thinking along those lines? It's funny. I didn't think about it as a memoir at all. Uh, I still don't. I just thought it was kind of essays. I thought it was me rambling. I certainly didn't think I was sitting down to take stock of my life. But there are recurrent themes. I mean, it's not it's not completist. And I'm assuming that you were sort of 
careful about what you left out and what you decided to include. For example, I don't know how deliberate this was, but late in the book, all of a sudden, um, you're married and have a baby. Um, And then you kind of, you know, go back and fill in a little bit of the detail as to how that came to pass, but not too much. You know, I think it was just one of those things of wanting to write, write the stories that I had to tell and not bring up things that felt like, oh, I don't really have an interesting, funny story. One of the recurrent themes in the book is gender. And I think that, you know, our viewer Sloan Crossley made the comparison to Nora Ephron. It certainly oh, came up. Oh, my God, that slays me. I, Nora Ephron is like my, my guiding light of a writing. So that really, that kind of made my life. Oh, good. Well, there were two essays in particular, actually three, Tom Mann, Poodle versus Wolf, um, and then um, the lingerie is it the lingerie dilemma. I would, would love you to tell us a little bit about the difference between a poodle and a wolf. <laughs> I think it's one of those things where usually you kind of know it when you see it. <laughs> I am a wolf. Angelina Jolie is a poodle. It's like about someone's relationship to a certain kind of femininity, and maybe it's when a poodle is when there's this kind of seamless overlap between just someone's essence and and this sort of stereotypical trappings of what is considered feminine and sexy. Wolves, there's a little more of a um, a fisher, a fisher, a fisher. I'm thinking of old art history words I used to use in papers. How embarrassing! I like literally just miss. I'm like Trump. <laughs> yeah, I think a, a wolf is just someone whose whose relationship to their femininity is a little more um, effort based or uncomfortable, and a poodle is someone who's really just kind of just kind of really finding it coming very naturally. There's a scene that you describe in a lingerie store in the lingerie dilemma at a little French lingerie store um, where you're trying on underwear and uh, you keep having to ask the sales clerk to bring over a larger uh, size. And it's just uh-huh. this like increasingly uh-huh. humiliating uh, yep. task. And there was this one line, um, one of many that made me laugh out loud that I want to read aloud. And then I'd love you to read aloud something. But uh, here is Jesse Klein writing about trying on lingerie. She brought back a selection of gauzy little outfits, all of which were paired with thongs as the bottom half. Do you have any sets that aren't thongs? I asked. She looked at me like I was asking if she would like to join ISIS. They did not. I love that line. (laughs) Can you read to us uh, from one of the essays? I have a weird affection for the chapter about being at the Emmys. So basically the lead up is I go to the Emmys and it's three months after I've given birth to my son. And so I'm still um, breast pumping. After the the ceremony, I was I they had saved a little dressing room downstairs for me to go pump breast pump in. So my friends have gone on to the dinner, and I have to catch up with them alone because I'm breast pumping. Um, I feel like I'm not really here, even though I'm here. It's the same feeling I had when I started working on SNL, and I went to the after party for the first time, the legendarily coolest party in New York City. I expected to feel the relief of finally being in. But as I was ushered to a table on the immediate front with the other new writers and interns, I realized that the real party was in the back. And in the back, the real party was at Lauren's table. And even at Lauren's table, the real party is probably only in Lauren's head. And in Lauren's head, Lauren is the only person allowed in. I think maybe Paul Simon is also there. Much is made of the modern phenomenon of FOMO, the fear of missing out, spawned by millions of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter photos, 
of people having more fun than you, being closer to the ocean than you, showing off better tits and ass than you, standing closer to celebrities than you. You think, I wish I was there, not here. But then you get there and you think, I thought here would be different. I thought it would be more like there, but it's more like here again. And it never ends. I would keep pondering this, but I'm finished pumping. I pull my dress back on, struggling to zip the back on my own and walk into the bathroom where I pour my breast milk into the sink and watch the white go down the drain. All right. I love that you chose that portion because I think that it shows that this is is a very funny book, but it's more than just a funny book. Um, because, of course, you just crystallize a thought process that I think many of us uh, have uh, at least once and often, you know, a million times, but haven't quite articulated in that way. So, Jesse, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. The book, again, is called You'll Grow Out of It by Jesse Klein. Alexandra Alter joins us now to talk about what's going on in the literary world. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pamela. What is going on? Well, there are two big books coming out next week, and both are rather controversial in their own ways. Um, one is a book about love by Jonah Lair. This is his sort of shot at redemption after he was kind of forced out of the journalism and writing profession when when it came to light that he had plagiarized himself and others, as well as fabricated quotes by Bob Dylan, of all people, in his book, Imagine. So he was obviously publicly excoriated for that. He resigned from his positions and has kept a very low profile until now. And some of the early reviews have been um, fairly damning of this new book, although he does outline the steps he took this time to prevent errors like that from happening, including hiring a fact checker, running quotes by the sources that they came from and things like that. And I wondered how people would react to this book, because I think you're hearing, even before people have had a chance to read it, some people say, why not give him a second chance? People change. People learn from the mistakes. There's no reason to have lifetime of exile for a talented writer like Jonah Lair, whereas others think his crimes were so great that he really should find a different profession. How old is he? He's 35. So when did the great shaming occur? I think the first inklings were um, in the summer of 2012 when people began to realize that Jonah Lair's blog post for The New Yorker recycled some of his old material, which was published in other outlets. He had recently been hired for The New Yorker as a staff writer, so he was suspended but not immediately fired. And then sometime later, the journalist Michael Moynihan picked up a copy of Imagine, which was his book about creativity. And Michael Moynihan is a big Bob Dylan fan. So when he read some quotes that were unfamiliar, having combed over every interview that Bob Dylan has ever given, he became suspicious, confronted Jonah Lair, who you know, initially made up a story about how he had access to previously unpublished interviews, and eventually copped to the fact that he had made up the quotes. And that was when Houghton Mifflin Harcourt had to recall copies of the book, which is, you know, an incredible process and expensive. They offered people refunds. And, you know, Jonah Lear resigned from The New Yorker. And that was when his, you know, real exile began. I thought that he was going to write a mea culpa. Like, I thought that the book that he was contracted to write was a memoir about sort of how this all went down. 
Yes, that's interesting. In fact, a lot of people were under that impression because when he sold the book to Simon & Schuster, the proposal was leaked. In fact, Julie Bosman at the New York Times got a copy of it. And it was indeed that, you know, the chapter that people were quoting from described the experience of him being found out and exposed as as a liar. Um, He tried to cover up, of course, the the plagiarism and, and the fabrications how ashamed he felt and how his life was destroyed. And it did appear that he was going to make that the jumping off point for the book. But when I spoke to his publisher this week, it turned out that that was simply part of the proposal. And what he was proposing to do was write this book, uh, which is a scientific inquiry into the nature of love. And there are chapters where he refers to his, you know, the, the experience that he had after he lost his job and his career was destroyed, how he really found when he hit rock bottom professionally, he found solace in love, um, his family, his his wife, his children. He learned how to be a better parent and a better husband, he said. Um, but it's not a very personal book. It has more in common with his other books, like Proust was a neuroscientist or How We Decide, where he takes these scientific studies and tries to you know, apply them to everyday life in various ways. Is he doing press for the book? Is he talking to reporters? He's not doing much. He's not doing much press. He's not... Um, doing a tour. He's not going to be giving, you know, big lectures as far as I can tell. Does the publisher explain why or does he give a reason for that? Yeah, I did ask. And I think he said he, you know, he spent so much time away from his family. He doesn't want to um, be away from them again. I would imagine, too, he just doesn't want to be exposed too much to questions or criticism as well. Um, I should note that, you know, and this was something that people wrote about this week, the introduction to the book, he lays out not in great detail, but the fact that he was kind of expunged from the journalism community for his misdeeds, for copying his own work, for fabricating quotes. And he talks about how ashamed he is of that and how he'll regret it for the rest of his life. But he felt he did have more to say on this subject. And um, although it reads very much like his other books, I think it was a, a personal project. At least he was he was driven to write it for personal reasons. Our reviewer in the New York Times book review, David Brooks, actually uh, likes the book. Oh, that's very interesting because, as you saw, Jennifer Sr. really sort of savaged it and said, um, I think the kicker of her review is something like, I fear it may be time at long last for him to find something else to do. So she sort of is not on board with him returning to the profession. I think a lot of her criticism was had to do with kind of the whole genre as well of pop science and the conclusions that people sort of draw in that genre. And she sort of felt like he had taken these intellectual shortcuts and relied on other people's research and other people's arguments and repackaged them. So to go back to the idea of um, him coming out with this book and the press that he's doing and not doing, I mean, so many of the outlets that are going to be covering this book, either reviewing it or writing about it, are places that he himself wrote for. Is he not then accepting interviews from places like The New Yorker, or what are some of the other places that he wrote for? He wrote for Wired. He wrote for The New Yorker. He wrote for The Wall Street Journal. He was on Radiolab quite a bit, and I doubt that he'll be doing interviews with those outlets for some reason. Um, One of the interesting things about this book and one of the discussions that it's going to generate is, you know, there is a gap between kind of journalistic standards in magazines and newspapers and publishing and and nonfiction books there. Jenna Lair paid for his own fact checker. It was not his publisher that went to those lengths to make sure the book was accurate in this case. 
this new book. And that's something that most publishers don't do. I mean, you have another case of a book coming out next week by Gay Talese, The Voyeur's Motel, which is another controversial book. Gay Talese was confronted with some real factual gaps in the book by the Washington Post. And he briefly disowned it and said he couldn't stand by it. Then he changed his mind. And he said, you know, it's a it's a minor discrepancy. It doesn't negate the whole story that I'm trying to tell, which is a sort of bizarre story about this motel owner who spied on his guests and watched them engaged in various activities. You know, that's another situation where a publisher accepted the manuscript kind of at face value and published it. And we do see that happening a lot in nonfiction. The standards are not as rigorous. It is interesting, though, with something like the book about love is that, you know, he wrote a book about love so much so that that's actually the title of the book. And yet what people are really interested in is a book about something very different. Absolutely. Um, I mean, people love redemption stories. And I think people wanted to hear from him what he went through, you know, what it's like to be shamed, to be cast out of your profession. He does address that. But I think think not at the length some people would like. And similarly, as Jennifer Sr. noted in her review for a book about love, he references his wife um, really fleetingly. My understanding from talking to his publisher and um, and his publicist is that he, you know, he didn't want to, his family life is personal and they've been through a lot and he didn't want to name his wife or go into details or expose her to any more um, scrutiny than the family has already been exposed to. But it is a striking contrast for a book about love. There's also no acknowledgments in the book, which is a strange fact for a nonfiction book or any book, really. I mean, there's often pages and pages of acknowledgments of all the people that helped with your research, of your family, of your agent, of your publisher and editor. So, All right. Thanks, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. Antonio Garcia Martinez is the author of a new book called Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley. He joins us now from the San Francisco Bay Area. Antonio, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. So you um, have written what is uh, being called a tell-all. Is that what you deliberately set out to do when you wrote this book? Not really, because tell-all somehow implies a sort of like gossipy revelation of a series of sins or peccadillos. What I really wanted to provide, I think, is more like a completely unvarnished and honest, you know, first-person POV sort of memoir. Well, you dedicated the book in part to all my enemies. I could not have done it without you. Did anyone try to talk you out of writing that? No, no. All throughout, I think, um, you know, editors and agents have been keeping me on that fine line between being polemical without being deeply offensive. And, I, you know, I think in some passages in the book, and maybe you'll ask me about those, I think we got a little bit wrong and, and veered a little bit too much on the offensive side. <laughs> but um, no, no, I think, uh, you know, early on, for example, I proposed, well, you know what, maybe we should use pseudonyms or maybe we should fictionalize it. And uh, the thrust has always been like, absolutely not use real names, real thing that this that's the selling point of the book, the fact that everything is real. And that's that's how we kept it. All right. Well, let's talk about what really happened then. Um, you started out working at Goldman before you went off to Silicon Valley. How did you make that transition and why? You know, I was kind of a flailing PhD student at Berkeley, having my bohemian life. And then I read a book that, funnily enough, The New York Times is comparing my book to, which I find extraordinarily flattering. I don't know if I quite believe it, but I read Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker which uh, was sort of the gateway drug for finance. So that's how I ended up in finance. And then in 2008, of course, the world was blowing up. I was, you know, helping trade uh, credit derivatives. And I sort of suspected from my experience at Berkeley that tech would be the sort of oasis in the the soon-to-be ruin of the American economy. And, I, you know, I was somewhat right. And so I, I got a job at sort of a random funded post-Series C, which means relatively larger 
startup company and you know drove five days west from New York until I got to California. So that's how that happened. So weirdly, your your path was sort of strangely dictated by a, a later Michael Lewis book as well. Yeah, I don't know if you're going to ask me. I mean, I think the book have a lot of parallels, right? It's someone who's relatively middling or junior in an organization in a very interesting time in that in that organization, you know, with a really perceptive eye portraying everyone with all their foibles in a very sort of realistic light, which I, which is what I aspire to do in my book. And I think the other thing is also going to be Michael Lewis wrote Liar's Poker as a cautionary tale, right? This is why you shouldn't go into finance. And of course, it is the exact opposite. It was actually the gateway drug for finance. Everyone I knew on Wall Street had read it. I'm kind of fearing that I think my book will, will also be sort of a cautionary tale, but I, I, can, I just know that there's going to be a 22-year-old computer science grad showing up in Silicon Valley with that book under his arm. And, it's, and I'm personally to blame for that. <laughs> so how did you end up, you started off at, a, at a, a relatively small startup. How did you get from there to Facebook? What was your trajectory? So this small company, I was the founder, right? And it, it was me and two buddies, um, my clue, two closest friends and work collaborators at this larger company that I mentioned that I had gotten a job after Goldman. And, and that company was not doing well. The, the CEO was your classic sort of sociopathic megalomaniac, except he couldn't actually deliver much of a product. It was clear the ship was sinking. And so we applied to what's called an accelerator, which is sort of a boot camp for startups, uh, one called the Y Combinator, which is sort of the most prestigious and sort of the original one that kind of started this whole notion of, of a company that makes companies. And uh, we got into Y Combinator, which is unusual because it's, it's harder to get into than Harvard. I and mean, we're talking single digit acceptance rates. I, I still don't know how they or how or why they accepted us. And basically, you spend three to four months, you know, hustling like crazy, trying to build a product, and you launch it in front of Demo Day, you get funding. And, uh, you know, I don't want to spoil it too much, but, you know, we got every every plague that afflicts early stage startups we had. So, you know, couldn't raise money, could raise money on bad terms, co-founder issues. We got sued by our previous employer, which is a massive crisis because we had no money. And so we went through basically 10 months of everything that could go wrong. And then, boom, out of the blue, Twitter shows up with an acquisition offer. And in the drama of all that, which I detail in the book, the company ends up going to Twitter, but I ended up at Facebook, which I know it sounds weird, but it, it, these sort of squirrely deals actually happen more, more often than you might think in Silicon Valley. And that's how we landed at Facebook almost exactly, although I, we didn't know at the time, almost exactly one year before the IPO and right when Facebook was sort of starting to figure out how to really make money. Okay, that does sound really weird. So explain it to me. How did they end up at Twitter and you ended up at Facebook? <laughs> so this is very common. Companies like Google and Facebook these days, they buy companies, and it's not really an acquisition in the traditional sense, you might think, like, oh, wow, you've got a productive business or an interesting product. We want to own it. it. The market for talent is so tight these days. In other words, finding qualified people that can work in these companies, uh, legally at least, um, is so difficult that what's called corporate development, which is the part of the company that buys other companies, is basically an extension of AR. They're, they're recruiters, basically, who have bigger paychecks and can buy 10 engineers at a time or five engineers at a time rather than hiring each one individually and, you know, be a conventional means as, as you normally would with a CV and an interview and all that. What these companies do is they take a look at a company that they find interesting and they say, okay, you know, founders A, B, and C, we like A, we like B, we think C's a mess, we don't want them, and we don't want the tech, and we're willing to pay, you know, X million dollars for these two guys. You figure it out with your investors and C, who evidently nobody likes. And that's effectively what happened. Through no fault of their own, my co-founders were actually very competent, but for whatever reason, you know, this mysterious cultural fit, which I cite in the book, they didn't like Facebook and Facebook didn't really like them. And so Facebook came in and said, look, Antonio, we don't, we don't want AgRock as a construct. We're not willing to pay a premium for the entire company and everyone at once. But we want you as a product manager inside this company. And then the weird thing was that at the time and still, Facebook was much faster acting and, and, and was just much a sharper deal maker than, than Twitter was or is. 
And so Twitter took like a month to get what's called a term sheet, which is basically the acquisition contract. That's the official offer for a company. Meanwhile, Facebook's saying, well, hurry up, Antonio. We want you to start working here. And uh, so I had to juggle this sort of twin deal between Facebook and Twitter. And, and that's how it basically happened. And, and then finally, at the end, there's sort of this dramatic scene in the book, um, you know, the first sort of serious in-person meeting uh, post-term sheet to discuss like actual uh, actual terms, I basically say, look, I, I know we've been discussing the deal that includes me, but we need to discuss a deal that's actually going to happen, which is without me, which, of course, as you can imagine, went off like a bomb inside the room. They basically escorted us out the door. Everyone thought I had blown up the deal, but then it turns out an hour later they came back and sort of had the offer and, you know, life went on. And are you an engineer? Is that what you actually do? It's weird. I came to science relatively late. I actually was, uh, well, it may not be surprising at this point, but I actually started life as, as a journalist and as a writer. In fact, my first paying job was actually as a journalism intern at the Miami Herald in, in, in high school. Um, but I ended up in the sciences for various reasons not worth getting into. And, you know, in science, you sort of learn how to code, though not really. And, and I was actually late to it. I wasn't really the sort of geeky kid as a kid that, you know, programmed as Commodore at 13 or whatever. That was not me at all. But later in life, I, I did learn how to program. And so I ended up being kind of a research scientist guy. In other words, the sort of PhD level scientist who can code, but is not what we'd call a developer, right? not a professional software engineer. And so, yeah, no, I, I did write some code for original Agrock, and I certainly did it at Kimmy, and I did it at Goldman. But, you know, once I became sort of CEO, which, you know, the joke is CEO stands for chief email officer, uh, all I was writing was code that made humans do things, not computers, i.e. emails and blog posts. And so, yeah, I, I haven't written a line of production code in, in five years, probably. Okay. So for those of us who don't work in Silicon Valley, but just watch movies about it, how is Facebook different from, like, the social network? So I was at Facebook for the period covered in the social network, but I mean, you could see the echoes of the early company culture in the company now. So the social network, I think, was partially right in that it captured a little bit of the sort of bro-y frat boyness of it, which, I mean, I think this can be overstressed because by the time I got there, I was employee 2000 or something. You know, there was HR and formal adult supervision, and there's some things you couldn't get away with. But there is the example, and, and I, I quote the anecdote in the book, I actually brewed beer on Facebook's campus, which is totally legal in Menlo Park. I actually blew up the plumbing and flooded uh, Mark Zuckerberg's desk. And, you know, these sort of like frat house hijinks that you expect to see in like, you know, Animal House, you know, it didn't even lift an eyebrow. Like there was no, there was, wasn't even a thought that would ever come back and sort of harm me as, as, from a career perspective. What was Zuck's response, as you call him in the book? Well, he didn't have one, really. It was weird because, I mean, we were pretty hammered when we were throwing the beer. And so but by the time we sobered up around 4 or 5 in the morning, I realized, you know, you know, there's a small chance this will get us into trouble. So I wrote him an email. He doesn't actually read email. He only reads Facebook messages usually. Is that like a corporate policy? Uh, no, not official. It's what's called dog fooding, which is uh, Silicon Valley tech companies often use their own products, both to improve them, right? Like the ultimate, you are the ultimate user, and also have sort of a vote of confidence. Like we dog food, i.e., we use the product ourselves in our daily lives. And at Facebook, believe it or not. Um, because I know in, in, in most parts of the world, Facebook is like the anti-work. It's the time waster. At Facebook, you'd actually use Facebook to do work. Like all the collaboration typically happens inside groups. There's like a private version of, of Facebook that only employees see, which is very similar to the Facebook at work, which is the sort of collaboration tool that they shipped. You know, you basically go in and you only see a feed from, you know, people inside your network. And so that's how probably like, I don't know, 50, 60 percent of Facebook's work actually actually happens. And so as a result of that, you know, Mark being the ultimate dog fooder, he only ever read his Facebook messages. I don't think he actually read his email. Okay, so with most 
ex-Silicon Valley types and most people who have worked at a major corporation now and no longer do, as you no longer work at, at Facebook, you sign you know, these elaborate non-disclosure agreements and you're not allowed to talk about what happened there at all. Do you not have that with, with Facebook? I absolutely do. And in fact, as I say in the book, as I was, I was out the door, they tried inducing me with a $30,000 bribe to sign also a non-disparagement clause, which, I, which isn't normal, actually, because they kind of felt that, that I would end up writing something. I wish I didn't sign it. I didn't sign the honest personal clause. You know, it's funny. Disclosure and confidentiality, it's kind of like insider trading or hate speech. I mean, we, we toss those terms around very commonly, and they have a certain ethical important, you know, meaning in our head. But when it comes down to the precise legal meaning of, of what that actually means, it, it's actually relatively narrow. And, um, I mean, the book has been legally reviewed twice in the, U, the U.S. and the U.K., and we did make some minor changes, but it was mostly around libel. So, like, it would be confidential information, specifics around the finances of, you know, Facebook at the time, or, you know, I don't know, really confidential stuff, but just the politics and, and the sweep and the look and feel of actually being there, that actually is not covered by, by most NDAs, as it turns out. Okay, and a very different kind of disclosure. You also write about your personal life uh, to a degree in the book, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. including two children that you had um, during this period, and um, one of whom you, you missed um, her first birthday because um, yeah. you uh, had uh, an ad grok um, company that you were working for uh, open for business and how to work. Do you think about like, what will my children think of this when they read this book one day? <laughs> I do think about it a little bit. I mean, it is, I mean, it's not that salacious, but I guess, you know, some of the detail about how I, I met their mother and, you know, how they were conceived. So, you know, there is a little bit of embarrassing detail. You know, I like to think that if they grow up at all like me or like their mother, they're going to put it in context and understand that it was a certain period in time with a certain relationship with context and that we did what we did. I think, you know, they're very happy now. They're adorable. The mother's a very good mother. I'm sure they'll grow up to be socially well-adjusted adults. And, I'm, you know, I'm sure they'll read that book and put it in context and it'll be fine. What's the biggest misconception people have of Silicon Valley that you thought, you know, if I do nothing else, let me clear this up? To me, the big fallacy I wanted to get sort of through to the reader was that Definitely inside Silicon Valley, and I think even in mainstream coverage of Silicon Valley, the assumption is always that it's a meritocracy, i.e. the sort of smartest, most hardworking guy wins, uh, makes a pile of money, and you know everything is right with the, more, the moral order of the universe, right? This is how things should evolve. The reality is actually very different. Anyone who's been inside this machine long enough realizes this is true, right? The reality is inside a company, even, in, even at Facebook, even as late as when I was there, it's often this sort of flailing thing in which really nobody knows where the future lies. You try 10 things, two sort of work out, and then one succeeds beyond all expectation, and you really only understand it why in retrospect, and no one would have guessed it, which is what happened to Facebook, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. shortly after I left, it found its goldmine, which was sort of mobile monetization. But when I was there, no one really thought that would be the sort of goldmine that would win the thing. If anything, it was going to be the stuff I was working on, which was the ad exchange and some of the other retargeting stuff. That's the reality. And, and the weird part of it is that, the, you know, if you look at what, what, a, what a Wall Street guy would call the payoff diagram, in other words you know, who wins and who loses and how much you make if you win. It's, it's a complete winner-take-all society where the guy who, you know, combines a little bit of technical skill with good timing, with happenstance, with two or th three other things going on in that industry landscape, he, you know, he, he cashes out to the tune of you know, potentially billions in the case of the company or even personally tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And then the other guy who maybe didn't, didn't quite have the right wins in his sales or didn't quite get the right break gets literally zero, right? Like we always hear about the guys who make a pile of money, but, you know, there's a whole host of sort of um, somewhat frustrated Silicon Valley workers who's, who's, you know, who's considered Silicon Valley poor. I mean, maybe they've got a couple hundred K in the bank, but they're not, you know, you can't live on that in, in the Bay Area. 
And so that's the reality of it, right? It, it isn't really a meritocracy. Right. And it's not all winners. Everyone isn't rolling in dough. There's actually quite a, quite a lot of losers, actually. <laughs> so where did you end up? If you look at how sort of improbable my, my trajectory was from Goldman Sachs to just an employee in a failing startup to if you're a Facebook product manager, you're like a prince of the kingdom. And if you look at that, that just seems so unlikely, right? So in some sense, I guess it was a success. On the other hand, though, I didn't ultimately fail, right? There's certainly people who did far worse than I did. And I mean, look, I've been traveling Europe and sailing around for the past two and a half years. I can hardly claim that I'm, you know, it's been some abject failure. On the other hand, yeah, you know, I, I was sort of expelled from the kingdom of Facebook in a way. And so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's somewhere in between. All right. Well, I'm going to I'm going to leave you with that. You've made other book authors feel very bad about uh, only writing books when you fail at doing something else. Uh, But uh, (laughs) hopefully that won't prevent them from reading your book. Um, Chaos Monkeys is the title Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley by Antonio Garcia Martinez. Antonio, thank you so much again. Thank you for having me. Greg Coles and Parl Sagel join us now to talk about what we're reading and what other people are reading. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, Pamela. Pamela. So let's talk about what other people are reading first. What's on the bestseller list this week that's new? <laughs> Anything good? Oh, <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> you, you know, we're in the heat of summer now. Uh, the angry political books are starting to come out on the nonfiction list. There's an anti-Clinton book right at the top, uh, new in its first week. Um, Gary Byrne, who is a former Secret Service officer who who worked in the Clinton White House, has a book called Crisis of Character that is uh, just kind of repeating a lot of anti-Clinton stories. There are other conservative political books new on the list this week. Um, Eric Bowling, who is a Fox News Channel personality, his book Wake Up America uh, is new at number seven. Uh, down at number 16, Eric Metaxas has a book um, called If You Can Keep It. He, he's uh, less kind of overtly conservative. Um, he, he takes a, a bit of a libertarian viewpoint. This goes back to the, the ideals of the founders, um, talking about how Americans need to uh, keep hold of the founders' ideals, and you know you only have freedom if you fight for it, and that kind of thing. Are there Fourth of Julyish thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the one uh, maybe more fun book uh, new to the nonfiction list this week um, is a memoir by the uh, former Mets player Lenny Dykstra, um, who was known as Nails uh, back in the '80s. Um, he was on the, those great Mets teams that won the World Series back in the late 80s. Uh, his memoir is called House of Nails and is looking back at the the glory days of the drug addicted and uh, <laughs> you know, really exciting Mets teams back with uh, Gary Carter and, and Dwight Gooden and all those superstars. All right. And then quickly on the uh, fiction list, only two new titles at the very top from familiar yeah, names. But both at the very top. Emily Giffen has a new novel called First Comes Love that debuts at the top. And James Patterson is back uh, with another private book written with Mark Sullivan called The Games. All right. New at number two. What are you reading, Parl? I've been rummaging around. I read like a few stories by Clarice Lispector. I read uh, The Voyeur's Motel, uh-huh. given you know my inveterate experience. Have to, yeah. have to. Um, okay, so where did you come down on this book, The Gay Talese? Uh, the reviews are so interesting. Our review has not run yet, but Dwight's, Dwight Garner's review ran sort of trying to uh, stick up for the book and the project and the writer. Um, I don't know where I stand on Gay Talese, but the, the book is interesting. The book is surprisingly 
boring for a book about s- so much sex and so much sort of vice and banality. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, it was such a slog. Usually, you know, I picked it up because I was sort of no attention span. I was like, oh, I'll just finish this in a day. And it took me like near on two weeks, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but I mean, it, it is interesting. I think at its best, I think it's such an interesting look at so many different kinds of marital unhappiness, you know? There's there's some sex in the book, but there's a whole lot more of silence and fighting and resentment. And But anyway, I think our review, I think, uh, does a nice job of, of recapping exactly where I stand. But I'm more sort of immersed in this book by Ali Smith. It's called Artful. We've been talking a lot about essays because you're reading a lot of essays, Pamela. Um, and I just picked this one up, I think, yesterday, having pretended to have read it for years and years. And she was commissioned to deliver four lectures at Oxford on craft, as authors are you know, frequently asked to do on form and edge and voice. But she's got such a strange brain, Ali Smith, um, and instead sort of spun it into this book that's part grief memoir. She's sort of talking about her, her partner who has died. And her partner was a scholar, and she is sitting in her scholar in her partner's library and finding all of these like half-written lectures, and she starts trying to finish them. It's a book about sort of finishing the work of someone you love. The title comes from The Artful Dodger. She's sort of rereading Oliver Twist. But more than that, and I think why I'm responding to it and why it feels so different than your ordinary book of essays, is that it sort of reminds, or it's reminding me that, you know, we think of writing as so solitary and, and the work of one person, but the way that she reads and reading her read writers and reading her sort of read and complete the work of her partner, you remember how collaborative it is? Like, we are trying to answer the same bunch of questions generation after generation, you know? What is beauty? What is form? What is, uh, you know, what is voice? What is perspective? How does it matter? What and is she's, art? Right, what is art? <laughs> and it's really, like, not precious. It's not pompous. It's incredibly sad. So, uh, huh. you know, as is my want, my, my great <laughs> love of, like, grief and addiction memoirs. But um, it is really fresh and strange and, uh, yeah, so highly recommend. And Greg? Um, um, I really liked this book, Chaos Monkeys, that Antonio Garcia Martinez just talked about on on the podcast. Um, This is his story of Silicon Valley. And um, what I liked about it is it's very energetic, very lively, and kind of no holds barred. You don't get a lot of views of Silicon Valley that aren't kind of through six sure. layers of, of public relations. And, you know, it's, it's a very kind of secretive, cloistered, private society. And he just, you know, takes the lid off that and says, it's one of these, you know, you'll never work in this town again kind of books because he just... Burns every bridge uh, and yeah, enjoys the Exactly. Enjoys the and it's, it's very funny. I mean, sometimes he can come off as a bit of a bro, but it's, it's also um, endemic to the, the culture of the industry, you feel like. So you're getting this really interesting window uh, into an industry that is just dominating society right now and that we we don't have a lot of kind of insider reports about. Mm-hmm. And then the other book, um, I've just started reading the second book of a trilogy by our um, science fiction and fantasy columnist N.K. Jemison. Uh, her new book, which will come out in August, is called The Obelisk Gate. It's the second book of her Broken Earth trilogy uh, started with the fifth season uh, last year. You know, one thing that Nora Jemison is just terrific at is uh, what's called world building. Mm-hmm. She she's set up this world of geological catastrophe. All the continents are shifting and colliding. Um, the Earth and the Moon have come out of orbit with each other. And um, the the premise of this se- second book, The Obelisk Gate, is that the Moon is circling back towards the Earth, and um, the heroine has to try to catch it using a kind of a net of obelisks that she's setting up 
Nora is also very good um, on the social dynamics of this world that she sets up. And so there's kind of an elaborate caste system based on people's extra abilities and straight up fantasy, but she's very good at it. And what are you reading right now? My home book is uh, my ongoing project to read books based on musicals. I'm reading um, Hamilton, the Ron Chernow uh, biography. I'm not very far into it. I've just started it. So I'm in the Caribbean period. And it's so fascinating, I have to say. Um, it's the period that's really like skipped over or briefly alluded to in the very you know opening number of uh, the musical for those who've only seen the musical. Question. Do you, do you read do you read these books at different times? Because Hamilton is not like bedtime. Is it bedtime reading for you? That's my bedtime reading. Is it it really? is bedtime oh. reading, yes. Yeah. I need to go very deep into something yeah. before I go to bed. So mm-hmm. it's usually either a novel or a history. Mm-hmm. And essays. You're reading essays as well right now. I'm reading two essay books. So one of them is We Learn Nothing um, by Tim Crider. And um, this was part of a, a little trade my husband and I did because <laughs> I was reading Jesse Klein's You'll Grow Out of It. Um, she was on the podcast earlier. And my husband was reading the Tim Crider, and then we were both kind of giggling um, to ourselves, and we decided to trade when we were done. So that's that one. And the third book um, is uh, one I just started last night, Thomas Mallon's book, um, A Book of One's Own, People and Their Diaries, um, which was came out quite a while ago. I picked it up because I'd spent two hours in a very dark place, which was reading my sporadic diaries from my 20s. Oh, that's a horrible <laughs> idea. It was Don't so awful. I, is there anything more unpleasant than reading your diaries from your 20s. I think the only good thing about it is is that sometimes when you're in your 40s, you think like, if only I were in my 20s again, if only I were young. And then you were reminded of how awful it was. So to listeners in their 20s, um, I'm sorry. Um, If you're writing it down, don't ever read (laughs) what you write. Don't save it. That's right. Burn it all. I I burned my diaries from my 20s. Really? When did you burn them? Uh, When I met my wife. Oh, my God. Oh. All right. Revealing it all. Okay. Greg Coles, Carl Sagal, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.